S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 2, Episode 15, starring Sissy Spacek. Originally aired on March 12th, 1977. Hello and welcome to SN Hell. My name is Keith. With me as always, my good buddy Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. Very subdued today. And joining us again as close to a regular third chair co-host as we have, our good buddy Chili. Hello, Chili. Hola. Hi, Chili. Hey, how's it going? Great. How are you? Good, good. Excited to talk about this SNL. Sissy Spacek is our host tonight. Sissy was born in Texas, 1947. She's the first cousin of Rip Torn, which I was surprised to, to learn. She had been performing a lot, but really, she had just recently had her breakthrough role in Carrie, which got her an Oscar nomination. And this is really, you know, Sissy Spacex. I don't want to say her peak because she keeps coming back with other stuff. But this would be her first major peak as a almost household name slash full-fledged household name. Sissy Spacek, uh, I know her from certainly Carrie, um, JFK many years later, uh, a lot of other Night Mother she did with, I think it was Anne Bancroft. She's been around forever, does a lot of stuff, tremendous actor, very well known. Where's uh, Sissy Spacek hit for you guys? For me, the main one is Carrie, you know, pretty iconic role for her. I'm a big horror movie buff, so that's obviously one that pops up all the time for me and um she is fantastic in it she's one of those uh, actors who i find i'm always surprised at the level of success she did have and stuff that i either didn't watch or not super familiar with and a lot of big roles but i think uh in a lot of ways especially having a breakthrough in horror uh her career could have gone in a very different path too but she's quite good in everything i've seen her in she doesn't make my kind of movies other than carrie that's for sure but she's a coal miner's daughter and, uh, you know, and I never even watched JFK, to be honest with you. I, I always meant to. I really don't like Kevin Costner. But that's neither here nor there today. <laughs> Carrie's the iconic role, it, it, she, you know, in many ways. Didn't she win the Oscar for Coal Miner's Daughter? She yeah. certainly did, yeah. yeah. So let's jump right into the show. Let's go to the cold open. Don Pardo announces some technical difficulties. Shortly after dress rehearsal, but before they went live on air, director Dave Wilson died. So the camera goes to the control room and we see Wilson dead over the control over the control switches. Dan Aykroyd is dressed in a Union Civil War costume and he actually for the first time introduces himself as Dan Aykroyd. He's used he's rarely appeared out of character. Aykroyd tries to kill time and explain the situation as more and more members of the cast start joining him in there. So the joke is that the cast obviously don't know who Dave Wilson is. They don't know anything about him. So to find out more stuff about him or find out anything about him, they go through his wallet. And then they find a medical alert card that says, in the instance of unconsciousness, say live from New York. They all scream out live from New York and Dave wakes up and throws to the opening montage. This was really funny. I thought this was great. Uh, everyone not knowing anything about Dave Wilson, some of them after almost two years of working together, had me chuckling. I love Dave Wilson's sporadic appearances. He was a drunk, uh, broken down TV director a few years ago who was also Lorne Michaels' father. They throw him in every now and then for something goofy. Uh, this really worked for me. It was a very long, uh, cold open. 
but uh, I laughed through the whole thing. I thought it was a little too long myself. Uh, I really think the first half of it uh, was just dragging when, when, when Dan was there and he was kind of stammering and they were dealing with the fact that, that Davy was dead. And I, I really didn't think it picked up in any significant way until Jane came in. Uh, she had a, a weird manic energy that I, I thought was actually really funny. And there was some, some good jokes really came along. The, the second half really picked up the pace. But uh, I definitely thought it was too long, especially for a cold open. You know me. I like when they do the the meta stuff with the uh, the cold opens, you know, jokes about the show, things like that. It was too long. Once again, too long. They maybe could have cut one or two people out. Like Sissy's bit wasn't really funny and they maybe could have saved her appearance for the monologue. But yeah, I like the concept of this. I couldn't tell at first when Belushi first came in if he was supposed to be dressed as a Roman or if he was just like dressed as the average 1970s woman based on a lot of the <laughs> outfits we've seen on the episodes lately. And uh, I also like the line, Dan's line of, ha, 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 two years and he never hassled Garrett. <laughs> so that was a good one. <laughs> yeah, same thing. Went on too long. It was the dog on roller skates was cute, although based on the fact it was an old video, I'm sure it was probably torture for the dog. And yeah, I'm surprised neither of you two guys mentioned the fact that uh, the other guy sitting next to the director had a porno in his uh, booklet he had there. <laughs> I didn't notice. I didn't see it either. I think I don't think you're alone because only about five people in the audience chuckled. And I was like, huh, that's a funny, like, throwaway joke. For some reason, someone goes back to watch it. Or if you're watching it after you listen to this review, take a look at what falls out of his uh, book. I tell you what, though, I also don't like when the host is in the cold open. Didn't make too much sense. She just walked out, didn't say anything about, didn't add anything to it. And it's almost like it kills the fun of having this, you know, at the time, big star make the appearance after being announced. Yeah, you're Matt, for you, you you really go with a modern sensibility in that sense that the cold open is usually almost always the hot button news story or the political bit of the day yeah. done only by the, 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 the house players, right? Correct. It works. Monologue. Uh, Sissy Spacer comes out. She says she grew up in a small town. She's really nervous and excited about what she's going to get to do tonight and her career in general. She's very excited to be nominated for an Oscar, but thinks she's probably not going to win. So she does her acceptance speech for the live crowd. Then she recreates, sort of, the best scene from the movie, which was the last scene, and it was actually cut out, where she elects herself Baton Queen. And then she goes on to twirl a baton after a slight wardrobe malfunction. The monologue just sort of ends there. Yeah, this uh, this monologue did nothing for me. Yeah, my notes here just says, uh, Sissy Spacek comes out looking adorable despite wearing 400 meters of fabric. And then I have dot, 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 prove me wrong when she eventually ripped off those 400 meters of fabric to what's essentially like a bathing suit. It was impressive baton work, and I only know that because a friend of my daughter's, she was had a baton competition, we brought my daughter to see it, and apparently it's pretty hard to do. So, <laughs> her doing that on live TV, good for her. I always find it interesting how they handle the monologues for some of these uh, celebrities that roll by, because sometimes they really seem to to write something for them specifically. And sometimes it's just like, eh, we got nothing. You can twirl a baton, right? <laughs> That's a funny yeah. conversation with Lauren, I would think. Like, huh, Sissy wants to do her <laughs> baton routine. So let's have her do it twice. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, my note for the later one is the baton is in more of this episode than Bill Murray is. <laughs> we go to a Chiron, and this person laughed when Bambi's mother died. Next sketch is called Burgermaster, and it's an ad featuring Garrett, Lorraine, and Gilda as the staff of a fast food burger joint. 
Bill Murray, Jane Curtin, John Belushi, and Jim Downey all come in and they want to customize their burger. And that's the thing at Burger Master is you can customize your burger any way you want, including having a nose blown on it, contents of a uh, stereo, blood poured on it, whatever you want, Burger Master will do it. I enjoyed this one. I didn't know Jim Downey was such a such a big guy or maybe... Garrett, Lorraine, and Gilder are all really smaller than I pictured them. But I thought it was lacking a little bit. I almost would have liked to see them making the burgers, like if they just have the ridiculous, you know, you could see them putting the auto parts and stuff in it, or even if the burgers looked a bit different. Yeah, I also thought, I didn't know who it was, but the man at the end was uh, pretty large compared to the three main actors. It was pretty fun. Speaking of small, Sissy Spacek's awfully wee, huh? I noticed uh, in the, the cold open how tiny she was. My favorite part about this burger sketch was Jane's psychotic smile uh, after she ordered her burger. It was like a cartoon, the way her mouth hung open and her front <laughs> teeth stuck out. It was it was terrific. I mean, it was nice and short. I think there, there could have been, you know, when you're customizing the burger, I got a kick out of the snot. But uh, I, I think there could have been some better jokes is all. So we now go to Ask President Carter, and it features Bill Murray's debut as Walter Cronkite. He hosts Dan Aykroyd appearing as Jimmy Carter. And this is a call-in show where people can call into the president with questions. Now, the first person that calls in is voiced by Lorraine Newman, and they're having problems with the uh, post office machine. It's a post office employee. Jimmy Carter gives detailed directions on how to fix it. Then Belushi calls in looking for uh, Rosalind Carter. And when they won't bring her, he starts cussing at them. And so they hang up on him. And then Tom Davis calls in as a 17-year-old who just took acid. Dan Aykroyd, as Jimmy Carter, talks this person down. And once he gets a description of the acid, which is orange sunshine, he tells him to take some vitamin B, C, get some beer, just lay down, relax, stay inside, listen to some music, and get some Almond Brothers. And then John calls in, and it's uh, Dan Aykroyd in a pre-record as Richard Nixon, asking Carter to, in the Jefferson bedroom, get some money that he had taped under a drawer and to send it to John Smith uh, in San Clemente, California. This sketch was hilarious. I laughed at the whole thing. All the phone calls, especially Lorraine and Tom Davis as the, uh, the acid taker, are such a weird mix of things that I could see both Aykroyd and Jimmy Carter actually doing. I really enjoyed this. I laughed through the whole thing. Two pretty good impressions as well. That uh, him doing the whole acid trip thing, talking him down from the acid trip. That was, that was a real highlight. It felt real. Carter is portrayed significantly more kindly than Ford ever was on the show. That's for sure. Uh, and I'm not saying that's not without cause, but it's still interesting to see. Bill Murray uh, looks like shit, and I'm, I'm assuming that's on purpose. He also looked like shit in the cold open, perhaps in preparation for this sketch. Yeah, I think he had his Cronkite makeup on in the opening sketch. He looked like he had typhus or something in the opening. He looked sickly. But anyway, I, I enjoyed it for the most part. I mean, Dan does a good Jimmy Carter, but uh, this was a, a one-joke sketch for me, and it was that acid bit. And uh, But what a joke. I thought it was a real home run. I do like the fact that in what I've seen so far, Bill Murray's probably the first male performer who I find puts more effort into trying to look like the person they're trying to portray. If I had one major complaint about the impressions the first few seasons is there's so little effort into looking like the person. So I find at least Bill Murray's trying there, even though it did make him look like shit in the first two bits. Ask President Carter is number 27 on the best Saturday Night Live sketches that Rolling Stone put together on the top. They did a top 50 and uh, Ask President Carter being 27 to me was a very pleasant surprise. Actually, I, I think it 
based on what we've seen thus far, I think it's definitely a top 50 contender. Murray's Cronkite impression uh, uh, being very much of its time, uh, it doesn't really have any impact today. I didn't watch Walter Cronkite. uh, So that part of the sketch and his impression, it it doesn't have any effect yep. on me but you know I, I i really do think the the whole acid bit made this whole thing i think without it that this just passes as another political sketch so we have what's now a very strange transition for saturday night live very uh, python-esque of them the show part ends the ask president carter and the technicians come in and clear things out as sissy spacek comes in as amy carter and garrett morris comes in as her her nanny mary fitzpatrick Basically, they're doing a story time with the nanny type thing. It was very hard to hear. The sight of Garrett in the women's clothing is was very funny, but it's going to start a trend where that's uh, we're going to see Garrett in a lot of dresses over the next few seasons. Overall, this was not that great because I wasn't as familiar with uh, the nanny and the sketch relied on some of that. I was also kind of annoyed because Lorraine had played Amy Carter like two weeks ago and she'll go on to play her again. So even though Sissy Spacek is a good choice to play Amy Carter, it's kind of there's already been an established bit in there. Sissy's voice was just not carrying to the microphones. I couldn't make out 90 percent of what she said even before she went into the, 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 the odd voice. So, yeah, this didn't work for me. Nor I. Nor I. Listen, let me ask. We're three white dudes sitting around doing a podcast. Is this racist? It felt racist. Yeah, I'd say I think it's safe to say it's certainly. Yeah, there's something it felt weird watching it. Do I only think it's racist because Garrett looked so hideous? Whoever did his makeup did him dirty. (laughs) Partially covered his mustache, but then they partially left some of it showing. I'm not sure. Um, It's definitely insensitive to a few people. I mean, I was offended because it wasn't a good sketch. And uh, I did. I couldn't really make out what Sissy Spacek was saying either. And a lot of it was just coming across as gibberish. I do remember Lorraine uh, playing the role as well. So that was annoying. What am I trying to say? It made me uncomfortable in a weird way. Honestly, this is probably in all the episodes I've watched the longest bit where they've let Garrett carry it. And it's too bad because I don't find it was very well pulled off by him or by Sissy. Our next sketch is called How Your Children Grow. Bill Murray is a guest on one of Jane's public access talk shows, and he suffers from a condition called quintlexia, where you can only say five words. Despite the disability, he's gone to become quite a celebrated child educator. The only words he can say, though, are, that's true, you're absolutely right. After a series of questions where Murray answers with, that's true, you're absolutely right, Jane gets a little annoyed and starts asking some ridiculous questions to Bill. And then they push his book. That's true. You're absolutely right. This sketch didn't work for me. I, I thought Bill could have had maybe more fun with his his lines and said them a little differently or something. A few times he did, and it, it kind of worked. This was just an awkward sketch for me, and I didn't really like it. Yeah, it seemed like a bit of a bad improv sketch. You'd see just like with beginners doing like, OK, here's what you have to do. You can only say five words and make a sketch around it. It wasn't great. And I agree. It seemed like it almost seemed like Bill didn't want to be in the sketch the way he was delivering some of them. It's like, I don't know. I felt it could have been pulled off better, but there wasn't much of a joke there to pull off. Matthew here with the dissenting opinion. I thought this was really funny and I laughed a lot. I thought Bill conveyed 
the uh, torture of being only able to say those five words in a way that reminded me a little bit of uh, his role in Groundhog Day, where he also suffers uh, a weird sort of existential crisis. Uh, Jane kind of, I don't want to say egging him on, but she she started feeding them there, and uh, I felt his frustration. And, you know, I didn't think it lasted too long. I did think it was a funny joke, and, you know, you, there can be a subjective opinion like, okay, how long can we run with this funny joke? Uh, I don't think they ran too far with this one. I thought Jane was good. Jane's always good as this uh, host character. I liked it more than you guys. I thought it was really funny. Now, there's some backstage ska on this one. Did you guys notice Bill uh, fucking up one line? I don't think I did. Second time he said it, he said, that's true, you're absolutely right, and he caught himself as he was saying about that. So, the writers at Saturday Night Live could be dickheads. Bill Murray could be something of a a hard guy to get along with at times. Um, There's a story in uh, Weingrad and Hill's book that Bill Murray early on messed up one of his lines, and Ann Beats, who wrote it, wouldn't talk to him for six weeks, despite the fact that the sketch went off without a hitch. So, there had been some hate against Bill since since he debuted and uh, this blunder almost got him fired. Neil Levy is reported to have heard Lauren saying that's it, he's gone, but cooler heads prevailed and Bill Murray was not fired. A lot of unhappy people about that blunder. I have to go back and watch it. You can barely see it. I mean, I get it. It kind of blows the whole sketch. I'm sure as the new guy, there's a lot of pressure because, uh, you know, people fuck up and flub blinds sometimes. But as the new guy, you don't want to blow the sketch so, yeah. I, I mean, I totally get it. John Belushi's dream. John is in his office. He's dressed in a Letterman sweater with a football. He's retiring from acting to focus his attentions and energy on winning the gold medal for the decathlon in 1980. And therefore, he has to quit the show and focus on his training. But unfortunately, he has not saved any money. So he's selling coins with him clearing the high jump on the back and the comedy and tragedy masks on the front. And the money can be sent to John Belushi at NBC. I like this. This is actually one of my more preferred John Belushi single spots thus far on the whole series. For someone who often turns me off, I was with him for this one. I liked it. Yeah, I agree. It was one of my favorite things I've seen Belushi do, too. Even things like where he started shilling the gold, uh, the gold coins. No, I liked it. This was good, and I just feel bad that he would have been able to accomplish his dreams because of the boycott in 1980. He seemed uh, very comfortable at it. He just uh, a great delivery of some some really good material. I wouldn't. There's there's a smugness to it that obviously he pulls off very well, and it's like he's learning that you don't have to beat somebody over the head with your shtick to be effective because he's, you know, he's good at playing this douchebaggy beer drinking, you know, I don't, I don't want to say like an, the animal house kind of character, you know, mm-hmm. and he, so he's just got that vibe already at times like this. You can really see where when, even when it's reeled in just a little, uh, it really transcends more than when he beats you over the head with it. That's what I liked most about this uh, and yeah. his delivery of the material. Like I said, I, I thought all the jokes were pretty clever. The part that people forget about Animal House is like Bluto had a, a heart and, a, you know, he, he had a soul and he was kind. You know what I mean? You don't see that when he's when Belushi's playing peck and paw and slapping people around, you know. <laughs> so we go to a Chiron and uh, the father of Metallica lead singer James Hetfield is living a lie. <laughs> 
<laughs> Did you notice that this fellow looked a bit like uh, 70s James Hetfield? Did I notice? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we now go to weekend update, and uh, I'm going to run through this whole thing. There's no break in the middle anymore. Jane Curtin says many people have written in to ask if the noise at the beginning is a teletype machine. She thanks people for asking, but doesn't answer the question. Larry Flint has hired some Yankees for a centerfold. Johnny Carson will not be going live after all because the show has the right to die a dignified death. Lillian Carter is to marry a pro wrestler, masked pro wrestler named Gorilla Kowalski. And this is actually Mr. Wrestling 2, who uh, Lillian Carter was a, a huge fan of. And actually, he got invited to the White House. There's a story where he couldn't get in the White House because he wouldn't take his mask off. The Arc de Triomphe in France is now a large metal detector. Really laughed at that. We have a report with Lorraine meeting with Garrett, who's playing Muhammad Ali. Ali saw Rocky, and he does this Ali-esque poem about remaking On the Waterfront. And when Lorraine asks questions, she also does the poem. Garrett is casting the movie, and he offers female role to Lorraine. This didn't make me laugh too much, but the, the way they kept speaking in rhyme, and it, uh, it even concludes with Jane saying a, a rhyming line I really enjoyed. Quick story about Margaret Trudeau, the mother of Canada's current prime minister and uh, wife of former prime minister, possibly dating Mick Jagger. And then Emily Latella does a thing about endangered feces. And I think we're now Emily is trolling Jane and she calls her an old shiska. And then uh, Jane calls out the never mind thing and says Emily should just quit update. And Emily does the bitch thing. All things considered, this was a very strong update. Emily, again, kind of more of the same. I, I don't think she's going anywhere, despite our pleas, you know, 48 years later. But this was a strong update. I'd put it middle of the road. Uh, there were a few things that were good about it. Um, it seemed like the joke in the beginning with the baseball guys, where they talked about like, the suicide squeeze pictured here. I almost feel like that might have been like a flub, something maybe they didn't show the picture they were supposed to. Like the wrestling reference, Garrett, I agree about the, the poem was good and it was performed well by both of them. And then just more Emily Latella garbage. If they cut the weekend update off before she got on, it would have been a much stronger one. Jane continues to uh, impress, I think, in her role as anchor. I agree with uh, Chili. There did seem to be some sort of photo flub, uh, or, or maybe it was just a really shitty joke. I don't know, one or the other, but something didn't land. Uh, as you guys mentioned, the rhyming thing was uh, great. Uh, I think the jokes were just pretty, you know, they were stronger than usual. I thought the whole Muhammad Ali thing did go on a little bit too long, but uh, Lorraine was really good. I thought especially her her delivery was spot on. Emily Latella. I, I felt like I had a break. So when when I saw her come out, I, I wasn't angry. I, I, I let that anger wash over me like a wave, as I've been trying to learn to do. I think that what really makes it more palatable for me is Jane's intolerance of her. She is us. I feel you, Jane. So we now go to the first musical performance, and we have our guest tonight, Richard Baskin. And Richard Baskin is a singer, songwriter, film scorer. He's the son of the Baskin half of Baskin Robbins and the nephew of the Robbins half. He's also the brother of SNL photographer Edie Baskin. At this point, Baskin was best known for writing a lot of the music from the movie Nashville, including the song, the first song he sings tonight, One I Love You. And so we go to the performance. So uh, Hazard County Brian May comes out and sings One I Love You. 
and joined by Sissy Spacek. This is a slow country song. This didn't do it for me. It didn't match the show's vibe. It didn't match what Saturday Night Live should be going for, I don't think, at this point. It's a two-year-old country song. or not recent enough to be super popular and not old enough to be nostalgic. This didn't do it for me. Someone has trouble saying no to Sissy Spacek. It's just not my type of music anyway, but yeah, this was particularly slow and just no energy to it. I think it says a lot that he wrote most of the music for Nashville, but who won the Oscar? Keith Carradine. This guy, if he wrote most of it, one of of the songs he didn't do is what won the Oscar, and I can see why after this performance. So easy to be the product of success when you're involved with big ice cream. (laughs) They run the world. We had a theory about big milk earlier in the season, I wonder. Sure, big dairy. So we now go to Franken and Davis, and they come out uh, in front of the black curtain, and they're going to do some improv. So they ask the audience for somewhere to meet and a job, and they get doctor's office and meteorologist. They have a quick huddle to come up with an idea, and there's a bit of arguing going on, and they just couldn't think of anything. So they ask for new suggestions, and they get a newscast on the eve of World War III, where Franken plays and announce the newsreader and Davis kind of fills in everything else. This was okay. This was pretty funny. It was probably the best Franken and Davis segment we've seen so far. This was a good little break in there, um, and I, I actually kind of enjoyed this one. This had by far the biggest laugh I got out of the show, which is when they admitted they couldn't come up with anything for the first suggestions. I thought that was hilarious. I'm always skeptical of bits like this where it, they say it's from the audience. Like, obviously, some people are fantastic at improv, but it seemed well too well put together for such a short amount of time. Yeah, I enjoyed this. It was a, it was a nice break. Oh, another dissenting opinion from Matthew this evening. I uh, I didn't think this was very good. I felt like I was watching a couple of guys fresh from their community theater class uh, doing a little something down up the hall. I I just didn't think it was particularly funny. Uh, I didn't get the laughs. I I thought it was awkward. These guys, you know, you're fresh from an apology, fellas. So that's cool. It wasn't my style of comedy, maybe. It didn't land for me. It felt clunky and awkward to me. And I know, you know, Franken can have that vibe anyway. It wasn't for me. (laughs) It was too community theater for me. I got community theater vibes. Yeah, I didn't think you'd like this one, Matt, and I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) we now go to a commercial well it turns out to be a commercial it's called gidget's disease so lorraine gilda and sissy seem like they're three little girls arguing over a doll then jane comes into the foreground and announces that these are three grown-up women suffering from gidget's disease uh, which is uh, kind of the eternal cuteness i think is one of the terms she uses sissy does my little teapot Gilda has a uh, bunny slipper that talks to a bear that's done up to look like a purse. And Lorraine does that really awesome Shirley Temple voice that she does as she plays with a Mr. Peanut doll. Jane says that these women make you want to puke your guts up. And Jane knows it because she once suffered from it. And then a uh, Chiron comes up that says where you can send support for uh, to cure Gidget's disease or to help in research. I, I really enjoyed this. This was uh, this was quite funny. I love when Lorraine gets to do that voice. I thought Gilda was hilarious as the with the slipper and the bear. And I thought Sissy Spacek's messing up teapot and realizing that she was a sugar bowl was really funny. This was quick. It was easy. Jane was great. Uh, yeah, overall, this was pretty good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I love the line. What do these obnoxious grown women have in common? Really well delivered. Lorraine does by far the best like uh, little girl impression maybe ever. And it would have been nice at, 
at some point at the end after Jane admitted she used to suffer from it, if she did like just a very quick like split second relapse into it or something, I was kind of waiting for that. But yeah, no, this is a nice simple sketch. Uh, you know, inoffensive. Jane's glasses were absolutely sinister. They were straight out of a David Cronenberg movie. In fact, <laughs> I thought this whole sketch was a borderline David Cronenberg movie. There was something slightly sinister, I thought, about the whole thing. I mean, it's it was really just Jane and those glasses and the delivery. But then when you have adults living like cute children, and here we have the Institute to cure them of this horrible affliction and remove their cuteness. A little dark. It's funny, Chili, you mentioned how you thought about Jane doing a, a relapse. I wondered the same thing, and I'm not sure if I'm glad that she did or glad that she didn't. The joke was kind of right there, I felt. And yeah, this is an interesting premise for a, a, a disturbing psychological thriller, Matt. They shot it like one, too. I feel like somebody knew. Somebody knew that there was the vibe. So now we go to a Chiron, and this woman is a latent exhibitionist and she kind of agrees with that or or at least doesn't protest to that assertion we go to a sketch i only know it referred to here as the romance sketch and this one was written by marilyn suzanne miller it's belushi and sissy spacek they're a newlywed southern couple and they're arguing about new problems living together and including like a previous boyfriend of hers uh, I like most of Miller's stuff. It's usually, you know, comedy off the beaten path. That's sort of tragedy comedy. This one I didn't like very much, though. Stylistically, I found it was way too different. It was way too long. Um, now, this is one of the ones I know Marilyn Suzanne Miller mentioned in one of the books that she was really impressed with how Belushi showed great range in this one. And uh, sure, the performances were good, but this one verged on drama. And there just wasn't enough funny for me. And again, way too long. Yeah, I did not like this at all. It was played too seriously. And the accents I found at times hard to understand, too. I don't know. There's something I think Matt maybe touched on it earlier. There's something with Sissy's performances where I can hear her, but it's hard to understand her. But yeah, this was not a good good sketch. Long, too serious, no fun in it. And I just mentioned community theater. I feel again like I'm down the hall, the church basement, watching some kids do their thing. Uh, it was it was ambitious, that's for sure. And I don't mean to you know piss on it like that, like it's like it shouldn't. Well, but you know, I guess maybe I do a little. Uh, I don't I don't know why this makes the cut for television. It is excessively long. Maybe they don't know quite what to do with Sissy Spacek. Maybe she wasn't receptive to ideas. I mean, I guess that's possible. She's a mm. good actress. I mean, there should be something going on here. You both are right about the the sound. There's there's a weird mixing thing. And you know, I mentioned this when the kinks were on too that the guy's electric guitar was too loud. They're having sound issues there. I wonder if it's a personnel problem. I'm going to text Lorne. <laughs> we now go to our Gary Weiss film, and it's Sissy Spacek twirling a baton to uh, the sound of David Bowie's fame. All I can say is welcome, Chili. Uh, Gary Weiss is back to full form for you. This was, this was just like Raquel Welch dancing. I didn't enjoy this. And I might have liked it more if we already hadn't seen the baton, but I, I don't even think that made a difference. Uh, this just seemed like Weiss had to make a movie, and this is what they come up with. I mean, it was still exactly like the Raquel Welsh, but I think this would have been more impressive if, like you said, we hadn't seen the baton already. This would have been a good time to be like, oh, look at that. That's actually pretty impressive. But it was already shown, so it was just kind of a waste of telling. Yep, missed the boat. And that, that's, you know, to my point. They don't know what to do with her, I think. And that seems like 
like a shame. We now go to Bad Playhouse, which was written by Tom Schiller. And it's Dan Aykroyd debuting his character, Leonard Pinth Garnell, although we've seen a similar character before from him. He's introducing a play written by a reviled Dutch playwright. And this is a poorly written play about the existentialism of being called The Mill Keeper. And the play features Belushi Lorraine as the millwrights or the millwright and his wife. Uh, Bill Murray comes out carrying a dead sissy spacek. Lorraine screams as Belushi turns the mill and then the cast is introduced. Bill Murray plays Ronnie Bateman, who will actually return for all of the bad whatever sketches that we're going to see over time. I loved this. I was a drama student in, in college. I have seen plays like this. I have had to study plays like this. I have had to sit through plays like this. This was absolutely hilarious to me. I I thought this was a really funny, funny sketch. Really happy with this. Yeah, I'm probably not as enthusiastic as you are, but I did enjoy this a lot. You know, Ackroyd was great as the really smarmy host. And same thing, you know, me and Keith, if you're not familiar, similar backgrounds. So I've also had to sit through... uh, whole bunch of things just because my friends are in it or whatever the only thing i will say is that this you know quote-unquote terrible play they were mocking was legitimately better than half the sketches they had on this episode so (laughs) (laughs) i would rather sit down and watch the millwright than another one of friggin belushi and sissy yelling southern terms at each other i think i fall a little more on keith's side of the opinion with this one i did think it was really funny i loved lorraine and her gesturing screams the the whole thing was just so purposely awful and this is like the third time in when it's been my turn to speak that i've mentioned community theater but they keep returning to me with this vibe dan was great you know this is the kind of thing that uh would definitely have legs as a recurring sketch i think and it does we'll get to see a few more bad things hosted by him uh, over the next few years. So we now go to the music again, and it's Richard Baskin uh, coming out and singing City of One Night Stands. In this one, he looks like art student Jimmy Page. He's playing the piano in this one. Again, this isn't isn't doing it for me. This is on his album, I think, called Welcome from Los Angeles or Welcome to L.A. I, I mean, I don't want to say bad, but so unfitting of of what this show is and actually considering who we've had as guests the last musical guests the last little while it's a it's a big time step back um uh, not not pleased with this it's impressive how much he was able to remain boring with a brand new instrument i'm telling you and i you know we've already mentioned it there's a sound problem so we had a horn and a piano and a steel guitar and him singing and at some point i don't know i think they got a problem with their levels man there's all the it's all buzzing together into a cacophony that's just it's undigestible somebody's hopefully is going to fix that soon because it's definitely a problem from episode to episode let me tell you why i like this song though and uh, because i did a little i love this kind of this was really kitschy late 70s kind of stuff and that on on that level of insincerity almost like the the insincerity of it is almost what i enjoy you had that freaky looking background singer that they kind of shot uh, over his shoulder there and at some point two-thirds of the way in of the song it really the the instruments seem all over the place and i don't know if he's singing along with them there was a there was a bad band moment uh, a little bit and when it was all, it all just seemed to be noise that he was singing over all of a sudden. But again, 
really difficult to tell because they're having audio trouble. But the the city of one night stands. That is so schmaltzy late seventies New York. You know, there's a Joe Jackson as a as a pianist who's gonna see this performance and love it. It's very much like his stepping out in the early eighties. And you know, the music video had Joe Jackson and all this schmaltzy New York setting. I thought it had late night TV vibes too, because there was just something a touch sleazy about it. You know, he's talking about banging a bunch of strangers and then moving on in the city of one night stands. I'm, I'm overthinking it. I know, but I liked it on that level. So we now have a home movie. This was directed by Sissy Spacek's friend, Robert Altman. It's basically clips from, I think two movies, welcome to LA and the three women intercut with one another some of them having a similar connection or context and some way off Uh, i didn't i don't know this didn't do it for me and robert altman's name i read this somewhere on the internet it was pointed out like robert altman's name is all over season two uh like the nashville connection tonight we have sissy spacek who's doing who's working on a movie with him We've got Richard Baskin, who did the music for Nashville. Um, I don't know if Robert Altman was in bed with Big Dairy or not, but uh, but something's up. No, this was bad. It was just slapped together, and like there was no continuity. There was no story. It just took random clips, almost, of things from his movies and slapped them together for two minutes, and that was it. Shit, fellas. I thought this was pretty good. <laughs> I really liked it as a style piece. Uh, I thought it was intoxicating to look at. I-, I loved seeing it. I thought Sissy was good in it. I-, I could tell as soon as it started that it wasn't out to make me laugh. Enjoy the variety portion of the program, Matthew. Maybe I'm already kind of in the mood from that performance for for, uh, for this kind of thing. You know, that's why pacing your show is uh, important. But mm. uh, yeah, way more forgiving than you guys about this. I didn't think it overstayed its welcome. And no, it didn't make me laugh, but it wasn't supposed to. And it was gorgeous. So now we go to the good nights. And Sissy Spacek does the good nights. And in a weird uh, turn of events, Garrett brings her out a big burlap sack and Gilda carries one as, two, as well. I didn't notice anything about the good nights beyond it was it seemed to be a happy good night rather than a sort of subdued one. Lorraine coming in with like with the with the cord. Did you see her like no. stretching it around her fists and she's tightening it like she's going to sneak up behind somebody and strangle them. She even extends her arms a little. And then when she gets to Sissy, it's like, oh, hi. But no, she she was murderous. Steal Amy Carter from me, will you? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I've got nothing on the good nights. Yeah, they seem happy. Seem like they had a good time. So let's go to the epilogue. This episode won the Emmy for best writing. Wanted to get that out right away. Do they specify what the sketch? No, no, the whole thing, the whole episode. Just the whole episode. Hmm. You know, sure, it beat Carol Burnett and stuff like that, but it also beat other episodes of Saturday Night Live, which to me just seemed weird. Let's talk host. For me, Sissy Spacek was definitely a weak cog in this episode. At times, I really found her hard to understand. I don't think, as Matt said, I don't think they know what to do with her. And I don't think she knew how to broaden her performance from an understated dramatic style that was very much in vogue at the time. It's the same thing that sort of hobbled Peter Boyle, I think, in his episode. She really tried her best. I didn't get the impression she was phoning it in, but uh, I just think her style didn't work very well here. And this is her one uh, episode where she hosts Saturday Night Live. Of course, she'll go on to become very successful and to this day a very popular actor. She did get an Oscar win, as I think Jilly mentioned, for Coal Miner's Daughter. 
had a lot of other high-profile nominations and wins for a lot of other movies. I think she was kind of out of her element and, and maybe uh, maybe wasn't helped along very much. Yeah, I agree. Doesn't seem like they knew what to do with her. Uh, there was some issues with just hearing her, whether it be the way the microphone picked her up or her accents were maybe a little off. But yeah, no, I wanted to like her much more than I did. It was too much of her own shtick the whole episode you know she was she just kept doing her thing over and over there was no outside the box portrayals from her or anything maybe maybe she wasn't receptive when they were doing stuff for her i mean she seems like a nice lady but what do i know we never chatted they could have been like hey you'll do this and she'd be like no i won't i got a baton so you know you never know what goes on behind the scenes with these things with these big hollywood actors who are slumming it down here on network tv so the music, uh, this wasn't for me at all. We'll have people that we'll see over the years that didn't really become like A-list stars um, who may have worked in other specific areas, and they don't get that sort of nostalgia retro level of interest from me. Uh, they don't have the name cachet of somebody I, I knew was popular at the time or, or well-known or well respected at the time so he didn't have that so he had those kind of strikes against him already like basically how did i feel about that performance alone by itself and to be perfectly honest it didn't jive at all you guys mentioned it i didn't like how he completely changed his aesthetic part way through i hate thinking that it's just the photographer's brother because i know that's not really the case but if i if i didn't do any research into this I, i'd wonder how the hell this guy got on the show and and just kind of assume that either robert altman pulled some strings sissy spacek pulled some strings or uh edie baskin the photographer pulled some strings uh to be honest rather than this the house band i would have loved to have seen or or something like that just seems so strange that 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 this guy is is on at this point i, I thought the first song though was uh, just kind of there i don't need to go on about the whole thing again i do want to live in the city of one night stands i mean haven't we all as troubled young men at some point troubled young people yeah no he was boring all the way around <laughs> uh <laughs> even changing it up sometimes you know someone does something doesn't work they come back and you at least feel like, hey, I didn't like either one of them, but at least they're trying. This didn't even feel like he was trying to do any type of, uh, there's no energy. The, yeah, that's the best way. There's no energy to either of his performances. So, yeah, this is a big dud. So what was the worst sketch of the night? That thing with Belushi and uh, the, the romance, romance it was called. That was too long and too community theater and it wasn't funny. You know, as much as I admire ambition in the show's. That this was overkill, in my opinion. Somebody should have looked at this and said, whoa, is this too long? Is this is this funny? Maybe they're feeling because, you know, we're still only in season two. So, you, you know, stuff like this is still getting by. Just because we got rid of the Muppets doesn't mean we got a flawless show on our hands. Yeah, I'm going to say the same. That was the worst one by far. The tone was off. You couldn't make them out half the time. And it was just, there was no jokes. There was nothing funny about it. So that was the worst. I wrote down next, I picked the same, the romance sketch. Um, and I wrote down, if this is funny, it's the kind of funny that Blossom was funny. It's kind of a serious funny. <laughs> it was too long for me, though. It was just, uh, didn't do it for me at all. What was the best sketch of the night? This is also, this is pretty tough. Uh, nothing really stood out. So for me, uh, like I'm giving it to the bad playhouse. Like I figure this is at least pretend bad community theater. 
Whereas the worst sketch was felt like actual bad community theater to sort of touch on Matt's point. Yeah, bad playhouse. It was tongue in cheek. Wasn't too long. I've lived through having to see some of those shows. So it is pretty legit. My favorite sketch of the night was How Your Children Grow with uh, Bill Murray and Jane Curtin. Uh, I thought Bill captured his torment uh, as well as his ability to handle it very well. I thought Jane was great egging him on. I, I thought they just really pulled it off well. They, they didn't milk it too long. You know, that's a risky sketch. That's a risky joke to go out there and make, like these are the only five things that this guy can say. But yeah, I really thought they pulled it off. I was torn between a bad play and what I actually did go with, which was uh, Ask President Carter. I'll, I'll leave the little caveat in that I split this from the Garrett sketch as most seem to, but there are a few places that put them together. For me, the Ask President Carter half of that sketch, if that's how you want to view it, was was good enough to uh, to go over. But if I had to put the two together, I might have thought of it a little differently. But I think they are two very different sketches. So who's your star of the night? This is a little tricky, but I'm giving it to Jane. Not that she had much of a standout night, but update was good. And she had like a good... Uh, nervous energy in the very beginning part she delivered her lines well and yeah she was in a decent amount and everything she did was enjoyable so i'm giving this one to jane i will also give my vote to jane Curtin. i thought her energy in the cold open finally brought it to life when it sorely needed it in burgermaster she was terrifying of course i liked how your children grow she's good at that host character it's you know it's not rocket science she just she just probably just has to be herself around this insane group of drug addicts but also her cronenberg turn in uh, gidget goes to shock therapy uh, really sealed it for me yeah this was a tough one honestly it came down to me between jane Aykroyd and uh and newman but i went with Aykroyd. i had said i was going to hold him to a higher standard because he seems to win these all the time but uh again he killed that bar carter leonard pinth garnell just uh, really good stuff, but I could have gone a bunch of different ways on this one. Even Belushi was in contention for this. So, yeah, this was a really, really tough one. And, and I like the fact that, you know, I couldn't write off the whole cast and just give it to one person. There's a lot of different choices you could have on this one. Overall, Spacek, not much to say here. What I'm really liking about the last few episodes, and I've noticed it probably best with this one, is how it really truly feels like an ensemble cast right now. The roles were very evened out and everyone had a chance to shine, even if they didn't. Any cast member could have turned up at any point and, and done something, and I really like that. It's far less predictable when you've got a, a bunch of starters rather than one or two starters and a bunch of people on the bench. I actually did think the writing was pretty good. Even the stuff I didn't like, I could see some sort of value in it. The performances range from good to excellent. There was nothing in here that was really bad by the, the cast. And even Sissy Spacek, I thought, did a good job, just a, a different style. That all being said, there's something really missing in this episode that I couldn't put my finger on. The flow seemed off, which is odd because it has a real similar structure to the modern SNL in many ways. But uh, for some reason, it, it, there was something not right about the flow of the episode, like something had been cut out and I didn't see it. Music was a big negative for me and Spacek was uh, really felt 
to at a place for me to be comfortable with her as a host. Some real high points, but not enough to give me any of the real excitement that I've gotten from a couple of the last few episodes. Uh, I gave this one a 6 out of 10. I'm giving it a 5 out of 10. I just felt there were no highlights, but there were also no major lowlights. As you know, I haven't always gotten the best episodes on this show, and this is not one I'll be looking back on fondly, but I also won't be looking back on it as negatively as some of the other ones. So middle of the road. I sure like when uh, at least entertainers host the show. Uh, I don't like, you know, when they get these the, the, the politicos and the sports people in to do it. I do think that the, the, the background is important. That doesn't mean it's going to be a success. I think the biggest fault of this show was that uh, the host was just kind of there. Uh, Sissy Spacek is uh, obviously a fine actress, Academy Award winning, but she didn't really add anything in particular or very funny to the show. So it was carried by the not ready for primetime players and some clever writing along the way. I didn't like that first song either. I don't need to make the trifecta about the city of one night stands. I, I did think the Altman piece was really fun to look at. Romance sucked. Gidget goes to shock therapy was weird. The community theater thing kept bugging me like in Franken's improvisation. And again, with the uh, romance sketch, you know, the top was strong, except for Amy's bedtime story, the burger master, how your children grow Belushi's dream, uh, even the end of the control room. So there was a nice little run at the top. So slightly above average fare, I suppose. Real shame about the host. Uh, I would give this a 5.5 out of 10. So with uh, with my 6.5, Matt's 5.5, and Chili's 5, this gets a 5.7 from us. And the Internet Movie Database gave it a 7.2, which is bang on with the exchange rate of 1.5. That makes perfect sense. And this episode was actually picked the 21st best of season two or the second worst and ranks at 260th best episode on the IMDb's every episode up to this point list. So 260 is a little high for me, a little too close to the top, especially considering it's the second worst of the, uh, of the second season. That, that sounds silly. That doesn't uh, make sense. Yeah. This, I mean, there's nothing memorable about it. It's not classic Saturday night live, but uh, you know, at the same time, it, it does have late night, TV aura about it, which I appreciate. Sometimes it was a little weird, but it, it was never too weird. Yeah, it was just kind of there. It's not it's not a classic, but it, it wasn't we're not like hitting the panic button or anything. It's just no, I really no. think it was came it was a bad host. Yeah, and it does have Ask President Carter, which is beloved, and uh like the debut of of uh of uh Ackroyd's Leonard Pithgarnell. So we're at the end of our show right now. Chili. You'll be back again in in season two with us. You're coming back in about four or five weeks. Cool, cool. But, but thank you for coming to this episode tonight. No problem. It was a pleasure as always. And Matt, do you know who's hosting next week? I did, but I forget. It's Broderick Crawford, and his musical guests are Levon Helm, who we know from the band, Dr. John, and the Meters. Do you know any of these folks beyond uh, beyond Levon? No. I'm uh, I'm interested to see what you what you think next week. Going to be an interesting episode, I think. I'm looking forward to it. It doesn't. I mean, as soon as you said he was with the band, I was like, oh. <laughs> so we'll be back in about a week. But until then, Matt and I and Chili, 
we'll be sitting here doing all we can to avoid community theater here in SN Hell.